Well, good morning again. If you've been with us during the summer months, you know that we're spending time exploring a historic profession of faith on Sunday mornings called the Apostles' Creed. This is a resource that has been used by the church for at least 1,500 years to help new and old Christians understand core doctrines of the Christian faith. And in outlining particular teachings, it upholds key Christian beliefs while also providing a sense of what Christians reject. The creed is broken up into three parts, with each detailing one person of the Trinity. And this morning we're moving into the third part and reflecting on what it means to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. For many Christians, to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're not really sure what that means. We know the Father made us. The Father is almighty. The Father adopted us into his family. We know Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And we know he died for our sins and rose again. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we're less certain. So perhaps an interesting question for us to consider in light of this topic, if the Holy Spirit had never come, how would your life be different? In a recent survey published by the Cultural Research Center, which is led by George Barna, 62% of individuals identifying as Christians affirm just that, contending the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. For many that would affirm the existence of the Holy Spirit, we would say the, the Spirit is a bit of a silent soul. The Holy Spirit not existing may seem like no big loss. I've heard it put this way. Rather than a holy trinity consisting of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, some profess faith in a trinity consisting of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. If this Christian were to lose the Word of God, that would be devastating, which it should be. But to lose relationship with the Spirit, that's no big deal. Individuals like this do not pray to the Spirit or in the Spirit. They shy away from using language, experience the presence of the Spirit. They, they talk about their love for God's Word. They teach God's Word to, to others. But rarely do you hear them talk about experiencing the Spirit or how the Spirit works in their lives. Some Christians may talk about that, but they're the silly ones. If we do affirm the Holy Spirit is more than a silent soul, we, we may primarily consider how the Spirit is beneficial to my life, giving me words to say, helping me make decisions, or pro providing insight and courage. The Spirit may be the member of the Trinity with superpowers. So as we relate to the Spirit, He could be kind of like caffeine in our coffee or a, a good pair of running shoes that gives us courage and enhances our performance. Outsiders looking at how Christians sometimes speak about the Spirit recognize how they often use the Spirit to give them permission to do what they already wanted to do. What if the Holy Spirit never came? 
how would your life be different? There are so many things we could say this morning. This will certainly not be a complete theological overview of everything Scripture has to say about the Holy Spirit. You are welcome. This morning, we'll primarily focus on a section of Scripture where Jesus talked about the work of the Holy Spirit before his death on the cross. The the passage read earlier in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John comes out of something called Jesus' farewell discourse. Prior to his departure, Jesus gathered in a room with his disciples to prepare them and comfort them and provide instructions for them about what was to come when he departed. He was concerned they might go astray, that they would wander and waver and potentially abandon everything he had been teaching. And so Jesus looks into the eyes of his disciples, eyes likely perplexed over his coming departure, eyes likely filled with sadness and sorrow. And he tells them the life of a disciple is better after Jesus leaves and the Spirit comes. He then explains key aspects of the ministry of the Spirit. In doing so, it's clear the Spirit is certainly not a silent soul. And the Spirit doesn't just add some nice benefits or advantages to one's spiritual life. The arrival of the Spirit is a life and death matter. And more than life, the Spirit Spirit awakens us to a particular kind of life. More than a life of simply surviving, the Spirit produces a life that is thriving. As we understand more what the Spirit teaches, we develop new desires and new affections. And so as we consider what it means to profess I believe in the Spirit. Our big idea this morning is the Spirit awakens souls from death to delight. So the Nicene Creed, another ancient statement of faith, dating back to 325 AD, in capturing this type of sentiment, identifies the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. This language has double meaning. Because the Spirit was present, hovering over the waters in the creation account in Genesis. The Spirit is the breath that goes out from God, giving human beings life. And so the Spirit is the source of our biological life. But it's also expressing that language, giver of life, that the Spirit, as the third member of the Godhead, is the source of spiritual life and renewal for the Christian. Because rather than simply a nice addition, in coming to us and in us, the Spirit transforms what we desire at our very core. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open it up to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to specifically look at verses 7 through 15 as we consider how the Spirit awakens souls from death to delight. And in addition to that, We'll use a couple other passages to fill in some gaps and consider some implications of how the Spirit awakens souls from death to delight. Let's start with verse 6 in chapter 16. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. 
because if I don't go away, the Counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. What if the Holy Spirit never came? Scripture uses a variety of words to refer to the Holy Spirit, including the Spirit, good Spirit, eternal Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of truth. One name frequently used, the one used here is translated helper or counselor or comforter. The Greek word parakletos is associated with someone who is an advocate or maybe even an attorney. As as an advocate, the Holy Spirit counsels us and comforts us and teaches us and directs us according to what is right and true. In verse 8, Jesus is describing how the Holy Spirit is an advocate who functions less as as a defense attorney coming alongside us and more as a prosecutor bringing conviction and challenge. And this conviction focuses on three, three things. The seriousness of sin, the richness of righteousness, and the reality of judgment. Let's look at each of these briefly. The seriousness of sin, verse 9. The Spirit will convict the world about sin because they do not believe in me. The world denies the seriousness of sin. Sure, people make mistakes. People tell a white lie. People engage a lustful look towards a man or a woman. People experience jealousy or envy. People don't look out for the good of others. But, But those are things everyone does. They're really not that big of a deal. That's not sin. In general, I'm a really good person. I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like Vladimir Putin. I'm not like like Jeffrey Epstein. The world minimizes sin. The Holy Spirit awakens individuals not only to the reality that sin exists in the world out there, but sin exists in the heart in here. It's not only people like Hitler and Putin and Epstein who do bad things. On maybe a smaller scale, I do bad things too. And even when I try to do good things, as much as I know right from wrong, I fall short. My external behavior may change, but internally, I still have issues. When avoiding bad things, I'm still focused on self. And so I want control. I want power. I want affirmation. I want peace and quiet and comfort. Maybe I live in fear and anxiety, looking for things of the world to settle my soul. I want what I want. And to that end, I use others and I use situations to get what I want. The Spirit confronts individuals with the darkness that exists outside and the darkness that exists within. That's conviction about the seriousness of sin. Next, the richness of righteousness. Verse 10. The Spirit will convict the world about righteousness, Jesus says, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. Jesus is saying how he was the perfect picture of righteousness. He demonstrated right character and how to uphold love and truth. 
The Holy Spirit in Jesus' absence awakens individuals to a reality. There is behavior that is noble and magnificent and right. The world dismisses the richness of righteousness. There are plenty of excuses to offer why right behavior is unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, I was mad, but she made me angry. Or, or, or it's not that my actions are the problem, it's that the standard is wrong. God expecting me to be generous and not greedy? sacrificial rather than prideful, to have self-control rather than indulge, to engage in sexual intimacy in a particular way, to submit and surrender to others and not fight for my rights, that's ridiculous. The Holy Spirit awakens us to a reality. Righteousness exists, and I am not righteousness. Rather than seeking the good of others, I seek the good of self. Rather than have integrity of character, I am double-minded. Rather than being generous, I am self-centered on self with money and my possessions. Rather than delighting in creation, I use it for my personal pleasure. The Spirit convicts the world of the richness of righteousness. And third, the reality of judgment. Verse 11. The Spirit will convict the world about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Satan has been judged. The one who brought evil in the world has been defeated. Evil has not gotten away scot-free. The world likes to dismiss the reality of judgment. Rather than consequences, we should all just tolerate and accept one another. Sweep everything under the rug, which may work until we are confronted with certain types of evil. The horrors of someone starting a war, engaging in a genocide, someone trying to hurt a child, someone doing we disagree with. The Holy Spirit awakens the world to the reality of judgment. The Holy Spirit awakens the world to the reality of judgment. Evil must be punished. Evil must not get away scot-free. But it's not just others who are evil. Because there is a, a gap between the seriousness of my sin and rich, righteous behavior. I have followed Satan too. I choose love for the creation rather than love of the Creator. I do not live as I should live. I choose self rather than choose righteousness. And there are consequences to my behavior. The Holy Spirit awakens individuals to the reality of judgment. When Christ defeated Satan and judgment for God's people was poured out on him, a line was drawn. For those aligned with Christ, his words, it is finished, means there are no sacrifices to be made. There is no more guilt or shame to hold on to. Judgment is past tense. For those rejecting the judgment of Christ, choosing to continue to align with the prince of this world, judgment remains. If we were to turn the pages of our Bible forward several, several uh, uh, chapters to Acts chapter 2, we would encounter a man named Peter proclaiming the gospel after the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And in that message, individuals are convicted about the seriousness of sin, the richness of righteousness, and the reality of judgment, and people get saved. They trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They are baptized into the Christian faith. The Spirit is at work ministering, awakening still souls from death to life. Many in the world have not yet been awakened to these realities. Many would deny the seriousness of sin, the richness of righteousness, and the reality of judgment. Some of you remember a time in your life when that was true of you. Ephesians chapter 2 says this about your life at the time. And you were dead in your trespasses in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. There was a different ruler that dominated your heart. The spirit of the power of the air, Satan. When you were living according to the ways of the world, you were dead. Not dead in the sense that you did not exist or did not breathe, but spiritually dead. You were not alive to the things of God. You are not alive to the seriousness of sin, the richness of righteousness, or the reality of judgment. You worshipped your desires. You determined what is right and what is wrong. You denied the need for judgment. In bringing conviction, the Spirit changes that. We become awakened to sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit is doing the work of awakening still souls from death to life. So for the non-Christian who may be listening to this message, and maybe in a season or a moment you are becoming more aware of how broken you are, as you recognize there is a gap between how you should act and how you actually act, and how that gap must be reckoned with, might the Spirit be awakening you to spiritual realities? Might the Spirit be convicting you to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? It's important to know that the Spirit brings conviction. This means the Spirit does not leave you feeling comfortable and cozy in your sin. But the Spirit also does not bring condemnation. The Spirit points sinners to the cross. When the cross of Christ is being upheld... Because the Spirit has awakened you to a new life. You as a sinner are safe. When you are stuck in shame and condemnation, that's a different Spirit at work in your life. Will you receive an encounter from the Spirit pointing to Christ? Or will you keep trying to earn forgiveness, rejecting the judgment poured out on Jesus? This awakening of souls, how the Spirit brings about conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, leading people to trust in Christ, many refer to as conversion. A person experiences radical renewal, a new way to see and experience life. Here's how Jesus describes this transformation to a man named Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, 
and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying being a Christian doesn't simply mean doing the right things, acting the right way. It's much more significant than that. Where we were dead because of the Spirit, we are awakened to something new. In Jesus talking to this man, Nicodemus, who was a moral man, he was a Pharisee, we see that the Spirit not only convicts people bound to serving passions of the flesh, the Spirit convicts people bound to duty. The end goal of the ministry of the Spirit is not for someone to exercise right moral behavior. Someone who trusts in Christ, who is converted to Christianity, is not defined by a particular list of do's and don'ts. Being present at church, not drinking, not looking at pornography, helping old ladies cross the street, not swearing. I'm sure you have things in your mind. Nicodemus was already living a moral life. Jesus was calling Nicodemus to repent of trusting in moralism. Nicodemus was trusting in his flesh, trusting in his duties of religion to earn a right standing with God. The ultimate end of the Spirit is not you being bound by particular do's and don'ts. It's you being reborn into a new life. So for the Christian in the room, we should look back with great gratitude, not only to Christ dying for our sins, but to how the Spirit awakened us to a new life. The Spirit isn't just some added benefit to our spiritual life. The Spirit is the very source of our spiritual life, causing us to be awakened from death to life. So in addition to that, as we consider the ministry of the the Holy Spirit, there, there are implications for how we think about the Spirit moving in people we may be sharing the gospel with or attempting to disciple or engaging with in gospel community. Many of us have way too high a view of self and far too low a view of the Spirit when it comes to others experiencing conviction. We think it's our job, or we, or we think that the Spirit has abandoned interacting with God's people. And when that happens, we become anxious or fearful that we're not doing enough as we relate to others. Or we might become preachy in our conversations. Having a right view of the Spirit doesn't mean that we're passive. But knowing the Spirit brings conviction, we are free to be patient and we are empowered to pray. Let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. In his book, Saturate, Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt tells the story of how his friend Randy was seeking wisdom from him as they were discipling a man named Clay. They had encountered Clay one night as a new disciple of Jesus engaged in some very concerning behavior at a concert. So here's how Jeff describes his follow-up conversation with Randy. Randy came to me and said, we've got to confront him, dude. They live on the West Coast. Okay? <laughs> we've got to confront him, dude. That was horrible. I know, I know, it was bad, I replied. However, keep in mind, he's a brand new disciple of Jesus. He's a baby in the faith, and babies make a lot of messes. 
Yeah, I know, but how else is he going to know what he did was wrong? We have to confront him on this one, or he's going to keep doing it, Randy said. I found myself agreeing with Randy, and yet it seemed the Holy Spirit wanted to teach us something in this. Slow down. Ask me for help. I remember the Lord saying, How about this, I said to Randy, what if we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to convict him of his sin? Before we talk to Clay, let's talk to God and ask the Spirit to do his job. Fast forward a week, when the opportunity arose for Clay to indulge in something that may be wise for him to refrain from, he abstained. So Jeff and Randy asked, what's up? I really hurt my wife and I embarrassed you guys at the concert, he said. I don't think God wants me to party like that anymore. Concert clay is dead. That's the old me. I'm not that guy anymore. I looked across the room at Randy with a stunned look on his face. He mouthed the words, no way. (laughs) Prayer works. I think both of us were amazed. We were thinking, The Spirit just did that. This is what the Spirit does. Convict people of the seriousness of sin and the richness of righteousness. Rather than us being preachy, sometimes it's good to be patient and prayerful. So this past summer, second example, when Eric Goodell, Ryan Mock, and myself traveled to the Dominican Republic to explore a church-planting relationship with an organization called Promised Land Ministries, They shared that one of the first steps to planting a church in an unengaged village, they're going into places where where the gospel is not being preached, There's there's no Christian church, the first step wasn't to preach sermons. It wasn't to do evangelistic events. It was to do prayer walks, to, to walk around and ask the Spirit to be about the ministry of waking still souls from death to life. In one village we visited, Gayual, the first two converts to the Christian faith, Alina and Jose, were awakened to the ugliness of sin in their hearts and the beauty of the gospel through dramatic dreams. Not through a Sunday morning gathering, not through a vacation Bible school, dreams of the Lord awakening them to their need for Christ. Soon after, they made connections with individuals walking around the community and they placed their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They had been awakened by the Spirit from death to life. As we think about how the Spirit works in the lives of others, it frees us to be patient and it empowers us to pray. What if the Holy Spirit never came? Sinners like you and I would not have been awakened to the seriousness of sin, the richness of righteousness, or the reality of judgment. Sinners like you and I would continue to be dead in our transgressions. We would continue to serve self rather than serve others. The Spirit descending is a life and death matter. Spirit, forgive us for reducing your presence to some silent soul or some small benefit. Thank you for awakening us to our need for the judgment poured out on Jesus Christ. Spirit, thank you for making us alive. So if you're a Christian, you look back to how the Spirit awakened you from death to life, and you experience gratitude 
and thankfulness for how that happened. And you also know the Spirit has not left you there. Your life in the Spirit was not one and done. You've been growing in the faith ever since, even if it may not feel like that all the time. In verses 12 through 15, Jesus describes how the Spirit works in the life of a disciple. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own, but He will speak whatever He hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit has a teaching ministry. And where Jesus has taught the disciples much, he has not taught them everything he knows. He's looked at what they're able to understand, what they're able to comprehend, and he has held back. There's a lesson here for some of you. Some of you feel like to be genuine to the truth that you know or think you know, you must say everything and anything about that truth when interacting with others. That's not how Jesus ministered. He was sensitive and aware of the season others were in. He was others-focused in how he taught and what he taught. It was not a passivity to avoid, which I think we can adopt, but rather an active awareness of where the disciples he was relating to were at. Jesus says the end result of this teaching ministry, you're going to understand more because the Spirit will guide you into all truth. That word guide, rather than the Holy Spirit abruptly dropping a truth bomb on you, The Spirit will teach you gradually. As I said, this isn't a one-and-done process. It's a progression into truth. Which means the Spirit doesn't guide disciples away from the truth or apart from the truth or separate from the truth. The Spirit doesn't guide us according to what we want to hear or what we want to do. Anytime someone says the Spirit told them to do something inconsistent with biblical truth, you should be concerned. The Spirit teaching is always guiding into truth. So Jesus has deliberately left his teaching ministry incomplete. There are things that those disciples will not understand. Things about the death and resurrection and ascension, they won't get them with Jesus present. But the work of the Holy Spirit will awaken them to the beauty of that work. And the end goal of the Spirit's ministry is not binding disciples to particular do's and don'ts. In verse 14, Jesus says, The Spirit will glorify me. As the Spirit guides disciples into truth, transforming what we believe and how we believe. The end goal is not duty, but to delight and desire Christ. The Old Testament prophets sometimes look forward to the coming of the person of the Spirit and how the Spirit works in the lives of God's people. Here's the prophet Ezekiel. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will place my heart within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So the person of the Spirit in the life of God's people does produce transformation, changes of behavior, but not by binding people to duty. The Spirit does not awaken people from death to duty. The Spirit awakens people from death to desire and to delight. Ezekiel is saying the Spirit is about the business of giving people new affections and new desires from within. Let me, let me give you an example of how this matters, that the Holy Spirit changes our affections and desires rather than simply binding us to duty. Okay, I got, I got an illustration. This, this is an oatmeal cream pie. Okay? Uh, if I put you in a room full of oatmeal cream pies, let me say, if oatmeal cream pies aren't your thing, you, you can imagine cake or ice cream or pie or cookies, or um, I mean, if you prefer carrots or celery, that's up to you. There's freedom in Christ uh, to enjoy such things. But if I put you in a room full of oatmeal cream pies with a room full of other people and said, don't eat this, if everyone else is eating this, if you formed yourself to, to eat this when you want, what, what are you going to do? You, you're going to want to eat this, right? Confronted with don't eat this, maybe you'll refrain for a while, but there's going to be all sorts of other issues that are going to develop. We get anxious and fearful. What if I can't ever have that again? Why, why can't I have that and everybody else can? What is so wrong with me? We get mad at others. Like if we're, if we're a kid and it's our parents telling us that we can't have that cookie and others can. Or, 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 or perhaps we even get mad at God because they won't let us have what we want. We look for other substances like ice cream or cake to soothe and satisfy. We see others eating that oatmeal cream pie and we become jealous and envious and bitter. But by telling me not to do something, without giving me a new desire, my heart is prone to anger and bitterness and all sorts of other things. But if I offer you a new affection, let's say a million dollars, your choice is between the cookie and a million dollars, unless you don't understand the economy of having a million dollars, you'll drop that cookie in a heartbeat. This is what the Spirit does. Rather than simply convict us of how bad a behavior is, rather than leaving us to simply survive, pulling up our bootstraps day by day, living out duty, the Spirit shows us how delightful Christ is. Here's Professor Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. What we love and enjoy is foundationally important. It is far more significant than our outward behavior. For it is our desires that drive our behavior. What we, we, we do what we want. The Father, Son, and Spirit love and enjoy each other. And created in their image, we were made to love and enjoy them. Blindly and foolishly, though, we have all turned to love and enjoy other things. Things that in reality are completely unable to satisfy. 
But the Spirit's first work is to set our desires in order, to open our eyes and give us the Father's own relish for the Son and the Son's own enjoyment of the Father. The Spirit awakens souls from death to delight. Ask the Holy Spirit for new desires. This is what the Spirit does. When encountering less than ideal scenarios, you know, maybe a car breaks down, or a, a loved one lets us down, or maybe we experience conflict with a neighbor or coworker or family member, we often pray for different situations, which is not necessarily wrong, but sometimes those prayers for different situations reveal a heart focused on self. A self that wants comfort more than Christ. We want the world to change outside of us, but oftentimes the Spirit is more about changing the world within. We should be asking the Holy Spirit, if our circumstances were not to change, that, that we would learn to be content to magnify Christ, that we would repent of our idolatry of experiencing a particular situation or circumstance, that in the midst of something less than ideal, we would learn in deeper ways what it means to cling to Christ and delight in Christ. What would happen if the Holy Spirit had never come? Oftentimes, we have much too high a view of self when it comes to how we've grown and are growing in the Christian faith. As individuals rooted in American culture, we see ourselves as self-made. I tend to fall in this category. I can be self-reliant as I pursue spiritual growth. When we profess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we are saying we are not self-made, but we are spirit-made. I am rejecting forms of self-sufficiency and autonomy. I am affirming I am dependent on the Spirit to understand truth and to glorify Christ. And that doesn't mean I'm passive or lazy or a victim if I don't sense the Spirit at work, but I'm not prideful or arrogant as I reflect on my growth. And as I long for future growth, I pray to the Spirit. Yes, I pray more than to the Father and to the Son. I pray to the Spirit Asking for more growth because I know the Spirit awakens still souls like mine from death to delight. Let's pray.